Brownfield's uh, project, I'm just thinking, it reminds me of this joke I heard uh, where uh, there's there's like a, a cabin boy on a pirate ship, and um, the captain is always telling him when when they going when they're going into battle. Captain turns to him and says, "Ah, get me my red shirt." And so you know they go through the battle, and every time they go into Gar, get me my red shirt. And uh, so finally, the cabin boy goes to the captain and says, "Sir, why are you always telling me to get me a red shirt?" Well, I don't want the men to see me bleed if I get stabbed. And so the next time they're traveling through, the entire like Spanish armada comes out and completely surrounds them. And the captain turns to the cabin boy and says, Arr, get me me brown pants. <laughs> Are you a busy Ruby developer who wants to take their freelance business to the next level? Interested in working smarter, not harder? Then check out the upcoming book, Next Level Freelancing, Developer Edition. Practical steps to work less, travel more, and make more money. It includes interviews and case studies with successful freelancers who have made a killing by expanding their consultancy, developed passive income through informational products, built successful SaaS products, and become rockstar consultants making a minimum of $200 an hour. There are all kinds of practical steps on getting started, and if you sign up now, you'll get 50% off when it's released. You can find it at nextlevelfreelancing.com. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 34 of the Ruby Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Davis. Hello. We have Evan Light. Today I have whiskey. And we also have Jim Gay. I am ready to go. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we're going to be talking about brownfield projects. There was some discussion. Sound very pleasant, right? Yeah. There was some discussion before the show about that. Yeah, that term is is terrible. I mean, it's poopy. <laughs> somebody had to say it, right? I actually, before we started talking, I started searching. Like, uh, is there a Wikipedia entry for brownfield? Like, who came up with the term brownfield? Like, well, we can get it in the Urban Dictionary pretty fast. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> I've heard it, I usually hear it as a contrast to Greenfield, is what I hear. Yeah, I, I certainly understand that. I, but I had always, like I mentioned before, I had always heard Legacy. And when I heard Brownfield, you know, it made sense, but it just sounds so unappealing. Well, yeah, yeah. actually, the, the Wikipedia article seems more appropriate, but I don't think of what they talk about when in the Wikipedia article when I hear Brownfield. Do we want to actually talk about what it is? Because it took me a while to even know what Greenfield was and all that, too. We want to talk about BMs? Jeez. Oh, <laughs> I don't think so. Oh, okay. Okay. You guys keep putting up links to Greenfield land and Brownfield land, and so when you said BM, for some reason, my brain translated it to BLM, which is the Bureau of Land Management. <laughs> it's, 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 it's your innocent Mormon mind at work, Chuck. <laughs> No, I think it just colors my opinion of that particular branch of bureaucracy in the federal government. Okay, fair enough. So anyway, back to our topic. Yeah, uh, so topic? Green, Greenfield is when it's a brand new project and there's no code been written for it, right? So maybe a startup. That would be Greenfield. Oh, that's right. We're trying to inform an audience, aren't we? We're not here to just laugh a lot. I forgot. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so that's right. I mean, I typically think of Greenfield as new app or if there's a bit of code it's the people who are working on it are already on the project like if you started it 
you know, you can consider it a greenfield, even if it's like a, a few months old and you have some code or whatever. I was going to say, I don't consider every production app to be a brownfield app necessarily, though. <laughs> Because Brownfield, to me, I don't think, again, I don't think of the Wikipedia entry, although I think that's um, maybe what the original term was uh, supposed to refer to, but I think of a project that's in desperate need of a rescue. That's that's kind of what I think, too. I mean, I you know, if, uh, what is it, working effectively with legacy code defines legacy code as code without tests, right? So um, I thought it was a little more sophisticated than that, but that was a very yeah. large part of it. Yeah, well, I mean, we could we could read through the book now and... See when I think of right Brown- now on the call, like live, right now, full, full. <laughs> I think we might have run into IP issues with reading Michael Feather's book, you know, for the podcast. Maybe Just if saying. we did a dr- dramatic reading. There we go. <laughs> now that sounds like fun. So in my mind, Brownfield doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, code without Oops. tests. You know, we can call it legacy or whatever. But I've I've been on projects that I would consider Brownfield projects that were fairly well organized and easy to follow. But maybe there was just so much there that I couldn't just look at it in a few minutes and know what more or less everything was about. Yeah, and I think of it, I don't think of it as a straight label like yes or no. I think of it like more of a scale of like this is greenfield, this is brownfield, and then there's a third one that is kind of a joke where it's scorched earth. But, you know, a project (laughs) can be kind of anywhere on that line and I think it's actually personal like so what might be a brownfield you know whatever to you like level 7 to you might be a brownfield level 7 to me and so that's that's how I look at it and it's just kind of a, a rough label for the quality I think so too I mean the other way of looking at it is you know like a greenfield project all the mistakes are going to be your own uh, whereas in a brownfield project there are probably mistakes in there already that could be yours or could be someone else's Right, unless you inherit one of Evan's projects because he doesn't make mistakes. <laughs> I was just waiting for you to say right, Chuck. Right. <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> oh, this is, I think it, everyone it, on the call is tired right now. Well, yeah. we should make that just, just a little we've bit. Been talking, we've been talking about, like, now that we have the transcripts, we, we look back after recording a podcast and see, like, how many times do we begin a sentence with so or say like or... Or how many times, in particular, does Chuck say right? Yes, Chuck loves the word right. Not Wrong. W-R-I-T-E-R-I-T-H-T. <laughs> oh, oh. Anyhow. <laughs> We're a little unruly today. Yeah, no kidding. So when you uh, make it a, br- or when you label it a Brownfield project, then, I mean, we've, we've got you know, that it doesn't have tests or maybe not enough tests, that it's more complicated than a, a small and simple project. Are there any other things that we can think of that we might want to use to sort of define what a Brownfield project is? Age is a good one. Like, even if you have a really kind of well laid out project that has tests, if it's, you know, came from before Rails 1.0 or whatever, and is still using kind of the patterns and ideas from that time, and isn't, I quote, modern or modern-ish, that can be kind of labeled as a brownfield because it's you have to kind of think back of like, oh, there's no RESTful controllers here. What is that What is that about? So it's, like I said, like originally, it's kind of the complexity of the project and kind of, you know, kind of how much you have to work through to get to your goal. Like, um, yeah. Well, I think he hit something there that the decrepitude of the project counts for something too. It's age. Is age it tends to increase complexity because... At least for those of us who are 
trying to stay relatively on the leading edge in terms of skills, we're going to lose the older skills. So working with Rails 1.2, well, for be pretty painful. For, for me, I mean, I've been picking up some uh, Redmine work, and even that, I mean, Rails 2.3.5. Yeah. Some, some of that mindset I've lost. And so I go yeah. back and look at it, and I'm like... I don't under I don't remember exactly how this works, and so I have to go look at it again and go, yep. "Oh yes, that's that's how we did things back in the day." I had the same experience working on a, a Rails two three project also uh, sometime this year. I don't remember when. Yeah, I've well, actually even- recommended to some of my clients who because uh, I've picked up one or two other Rails two three projects, and I've recommended to them that if I spend a day or two upgrading, that in the long term it'll actually save them a bunch of my time. Yep. And I was going to say, like, even in Redmine's case, I think they're up to Rails 3, you know, whatever latest is. But I can probably pull up the code and point to controllers or models that were, you know, script generate back in Rails, you know, Rails 1.0 days that are still kind of sitting around there and with the tests, you know, in that style. So it's, you know, it's about upgrading and actually getting stuff kind of, you know, I guess modernized, but, you know, it's just kind of watching for rot and how much rot that's in a project. Right. So now we're kind of talking about how to handle it. And so in, in that case, is it worth upgrading? It depends on the business and like, you know, what the app's for, really. Like like you said, Chuck, like is is the pain of working around these issues greater than or less than the pain of fixing them and then using modern stuff? And that's kind of the long-term maintenance discussion. Sure. I mean, what what's the prognosis for the application? How long is it going to live? Not Not just how healthy is it, but in terms of its business needs, how much more longevity does it have? And how likely am I to have to go back and do something with that same bit of code later? Mm-hmm. Or anyone else for that matter, right. not just you. Right. Well, I always, when I'm taking a look at anybody's application, I always start by looking at um, the routes file, um, or, or sometimes the gem file. But um, the routes file can kind of give you a quick overview of you know, what the heck is going on in this thing? And if it looks really complicated and there's uh, duplication or seemingly duplication of effort inside the routes file, then you know you're in for a big mess. Uh, that, that to me is like the canary of the, of the application. If, if people handle the routes and stayed on top of them, then, you know, or, or I should say if they didn't, then you're in for trouble. But if they did, then you might find trouble elsewhere. Well, that's yeah, generally... That's generally true of any application if you look at the entry points and you see duplication. It's a habit I, I developed um, from, I guess, from the talking to or listening to David Bach, you know, who uh, is one of the guys who does a Ruby 5 podcast, that he would mentioned once upon a time very much the same thing, that you can, looking at the routes file will tell you a lot about the state of the application, not just how well organized it is. We're not, I guess not just, how, not just how well organized it is, but how much care went into its construction period. Another yeah, it's another good indicator. Another canary that I've seen is if you run the 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 specs because our spec will print out the like the whole tree of the the tests. I know where you're going with it. Keep going. <laughs> and so once again, I mean, you can see how well it's organized and sort of how they thought it out just by just by having it output that tree of the oh, tests. I was going to go well, a step further and say one of the one of the. Uh, one of the, the ways you know things are probably not good is if you see a bunch of warnings when you run the specs or yes. tests. Well, that or, or I see a bunch of pending specs when you run the specs. That always I'll makes just, you feel warm and fuzzy, doesn't it? 
I'll no. just grep through the test directory for assert true, and if you find any of those... Yeah. Then... Same difference, right? It's it's yeah. the, the placeholders. I was created by a generator, and no one touched me specs. Exactly, right. If yeah. anyone thing... around, whenever you see those lying around in an app, that's usually a hint that uh, that things weren't done very well. It, yeah, I was going to say one thing. Like I've been on projects where you can't even get the thing to boot, and so <laughs> I've actually gone as far as using like Unix tools, so... Uh, there's a Unix tool called Tree, which will print out like a directory tree in ASCII in your terminal. I'll do Tree, um, you know, spec or test or whatever, and also do that on the app and just see what's there, how much is there. And between that and then a couple other commands that will show you like just the raw file size, like there's 2,000 lines in this model. That To me, that gives me a really good idea to like, okay, this is where there's going to be problems. And I mean, you, you know, that'll tell you, you know, is there 500 classes and they're all under 100 lines, or is there three classes and, you know, pushing 10,000 lines each? It's also uh, a common thing to do things like uh, a word count on a file or a word count on a directory or things like that, where it gives you sort of the depth or a line count even so that you can look at look at a mm-hmm. class or a series of classes and say, okay, it looks like these three or four classes handled this section of functionality. And then when you do a WC, you know, you just cat the files and pipe them to WC. It, uh, it'll tell you about how much code you're looking at and you can get an idea. Okay. This is spread across two files and it's 10,000 lines of code. So it's probably not well organized. So do, are we yeah, trying actually, to talk about what, what, Discriminate what, what the difference between brownfield and greenfield, and what the hallmarks of a brownfield is, or are we do we actually want to talk about maybe some of how we approach these crummy projects and try to make I them was, better? I was just about to ask this. I think there's a couple different things to think about here, and I'm curious about how everybody else handles them. Is you know if you're helping a, a team, you know if, if if there's a team that built this application, there's problems with it. What's your first step? When you find the problems, how do you try to gear the team in the right direction? You know, if, especially if you're new and they that you, you you're the hired gun, and um, you how do you assert your authority or assert the the problems with the team, or how do you get the client to realize you know that it's going to take a lot more effort than they thought it would? Um, I've got a lot of just, ex- I got a lot of experience with this one. The short answer is the Socratic method. I ask lots of questions, and I ask leading. I ask slightly leading questions because I want to know. I want to know if if they even perceive the problems to be problems. Like, what because did you it, think was going to happen? <laughs> right. That's not Is a that, loaded question. It, I mean, are that, you that, insane? Yeah, that that that's not the kind of question I typically ask. Although I've seen some code that that's brought me fairly close to that. But no, it really is a matter of. <laughs> it's true. I, I have seen some code that that really is that bad. But um, uh, I really try to figure out. It's more than when you're dealing with a team. It's not just do they realize what's wrong and 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 can you? It's do they, even if they realize what's wrong, do they care enough to learn how to do it better? Because now I feel like we're very much talking about rescue projects, and I, and for in in that case, to me it turns very much into a political issue, not a technical issue. Um, that it becomes one of determining that determining whether the people who I actually need to work with are as interested in fixing things as the people who hired me. Well, because actually, here's a question: often, they often have different motivations and different desires. What do you consider the difference between a rescue project and a brownfield project? 
Hmm. I, mean, I, my, I think of it almost as the same. I mean, I, I don't use a... I don't use the term brownfield, so I I, okay. I think I, I do tend to see them as the same. I guess the the term brownfield feels more passive to me. Rescue sounds like there's more dire need, and so I te- I think I tend to see projects in need of rescues as projects that are not only fallow because brownfield to me for some reason implies fallow that it's essentially being left alone, and rescues to me are projects often that are in a state of currently actively being destroyed by some poor developer who's not doing the right things. Right. I think that's probably on point. I kind of see rescue project as like you know. Uh, the application was outsourced and it went horribly wrong, and so they need you to come in and correct it. Whereas Brownfield might be, this app has been around for a while, and we need to renew our effort, or we need sure. you know more developers or something like that. So I, I can kind of see Brownfield as not necessarily terrible code, but just has been around for a while. Right, I, rescue is act a hot mess. Whether it's currently being currently being worked on, a hot mess or a hot mess someone left behind. Yeah, for for me, the other aspect of rescue because something that isn't necessarily like a huge, massive mess that needs to be saved, but where you know it may have been neglected for a while and they need to. Th- there's some urgency behind getting it back into you know working order and, and making it move ahead. Is it can also be a rescue project. I, I think the mindset has more to do with it than the actual uh, state of the code. You know. The, okay. I mean, because I was the only way I could think about it is like brownfield is kind of the state of the project, whereas rescue is more the state of the client, where they they recognize like, oh, we have a problem here, yeah. And so when they actually say we need to fix it, that's when it's kind of this is now a rescue because someone's rescuing it versus it's just sitting there. Right, but but for me, like the rescue project could be we urgent we urgently need to add a CMS to this, and so because they have an urgent need, we need this within the next week, and it's going to be, you know, a lot of work, and there's stress, and and you know they're gnashing their teeth at every day and every dollar that it counts to to get it to where they need it could be a rescue project even if the code isn't in awful shape. So you could have a brownfield project that's not a rescue project. Can you have a greenfield project that is a rescue project? So, some people don't I need that long to make a mess. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Skype chat for the win. I mean, Jim, I don't, I don't know. Like, maybe if the like, not, if there's like non-technical customers who are quote designing what the product should look like, and so there's maybe no code written, but maybe there's like wireframes and stuff, but. That'd be really hard to have no code, fresh project, but it be in trouble. You know, like it's almost a business problem at that point. Like, yeah, but there's still. Pl- I've worked on a few projects mm-hmm. kind of like that. That most problems that I've seen on projects are not just software problems. The right. software problems are usually a symptom of a business problem. Right, and if you have a large team that's generating a lot of code that reflects the dysfunction of the organization, yep, it can, <laughs> that, it can go sour pretty fast. This is what I'm saying. And it might be, it might still kind of feel like a greenfield project or could be classified as a greenfield project, but you still have a deep hole that you've built in a month. So, so it's like on that continuum where it's, on, you know, it was a greenfield, but it's going quickly to the brownfield side. Well, you know, every project starts with no errors, right? Because there's no code. Right. The All I, the errors are in the assumptions. Yeah, exactly. That's, I mean, the, 
I, the errors about... start before the errors start before you have the code, but they don't manifest really. They they don't have they're not concrete until you have code. But yes, absolutely, absolutely. No, what I was going to say is that this feels that Gerald Weinberg's assertion again that that that, uh, that every project that every time we're hired, it's because there's a problem, and the problem is always a people problem. People problem. The people problem is not necessarily, and I found often. Not a technical problem. The problem is usually one of business leadership, and that the technical problems that I'm brought in to solve are a symptom of a business leadership problem. That maybe they've hired the wrong people, maybe they just haven't managed their people well, maybe they haven't led their people well. But it's usually at some point it's the business. Isn't that well, related I- to Conway's law, where the the structure of the application mirrors the communication in the organization? <laughs> Definitely. Mm, yes. But what about, you know, a, a tackling technical problems like, you know, what's the code coverage for it or what what do the different aspects of metric foo tell you about the code base? I mean, can, can I generalize that just a little bit, Jim? Sure. So let's assume that there are no political constraints. Right. The customer just you have a brownfield project, it's got whatever problems it has and you're being paid essentially to bring it to the state of the art best practices make it better so that they can start making money or more money with it what's your approach what what do you tend to look for first or do first i hate to start with it depends but it depends on in what order what the business's priorities are in terms of deriving value from the application usually most people want certain features either added or working in a or working better or working correctly before other ones so then to me that's a matter of establishing priorities once the priorities are established so that you know communicating with the customer and then figuring out what priorities things need to be done in and then establishing where the technical risk is and then prioritizing to some degree around that as well and then usually most brownfield apps or I would say most legacy apps don't really have much in the way of tests so then for me, that's writing what I call life support tests. That's find the portion I need, find the portion of the code I need to work on in order to get, add this business value and then just test basically everything. When I say that, I mean pretty much every path within reason, if not literally every path, in order to map out the dependencies and then start trying to clean things up once I have passing tests. And that's almost out of Michael Feather's book. Makes sense to me. Yeah, and that's kind of what I do too. You know, basically try to find little spots like I'm going to work here and I tend to go up a level. So if you're working, say, in the controller, I'll, I might go up to the view and then go down a level to the model and kind of make sure like, okay, I can test out this, I can test the assumptions and basically like, okay, this bug requires me to work here, that part's fixed. And so you kind of have, you know, this brownfield, but you have these little bright green patches here and there and eventually right. you'll convert it over. You can't make, but you can't fix the whole project all at once. You have to tackle it a little bit at a time. Yeah, and you know, in my experience, a little bit of front-end cleanup can go a really long way. Uh, sometimes, you know, business owners or project managers or whomever feel a certain way about the application because of how it looks. And if you do just a tiny bit of HTML, CSS cleanup um, and styling, all of a sudden they believe that things are different. Uh, it feels different to them. And so it sort of takes a load off. Like you still might have functional problems that you, you have to address, but if you take a little time to just kind of make it look better, if it has you know visual problems to work through, that can really relieve uh, pressure. Well, maybe it's me, but I 
very, I tend to tell the clients how, how I see it. When I see problems, I let them know that they're problems. If putting a, a shiny front end on it would make them feel a little bit better, then I would do it because it would make them feel a little bit better. But I'd tell them while that's there, there are still problems, and this hasn't alleviated any of them. Sure. So, so again, for my case, I go very much back to priorities. It, it might be function over form first. Um, I, for me, I, it, de- it depends. I'm not just, arguing the opposite, but you know, as I, human I beings, we, we react to things in a different way. And even the way they, like for example, sometimes, you know, I, I've had clients who claim that uh, some particular piece of functionality is critical, like absolutely highly critical. When it's really Isn't difficult. Every, wait, I thought every feature was critical. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's what every, every client, every feature is critical. I have to have them all. They all have to come at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, and it's you know, it's sometimes difficult to get them to realize that that's not the case. But you can you can make them react to their own application differently just because it it looks different or they they feel differently because you know some minor aspect of the UI was cleaned up a bit. Oh, agreed. Yeah, I, I like that just because sometimes the changes are going to be on the back end, and so they don't really see the change in functionality other than maybe it works where it didn't before or something. And so if, if there is some visual cue of change, then it's something that they can see and deal with. I'll get this one in fast. That my, one of my clients, I just built a API for, no front end at all. So it's hard for me, I'm declaring there's been progress, but I really don't have anything I can show him easily. So mm-hmm. on the flip side is the consultant I'm self-conscious of that it's really hard to show him progress other than, hey, go look at all this code we have in GitHub. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I, I kind of agree with Jim. I mean, you know, if there is political stuff at play, which, you know, other than yeah. our assumption, that's always is. I mean, showing a bit of progress, even, especially if you can tell the client, like, look, we're going to do a bit of progress on the UI side. There's still these underlying architectural problems. The client will appreciate that because they can actually visually compare, hey, look, it's different. But they might also have stakeholders that they can go to them and say, look, this new consultant's producing results. You know, this is what they did in one week. We're going to keep them on. And so that's, if when there is political pressure like that, having visible, visible results is probably a good idea. Can't argue with that. I've actually used the same approach with one of my clients. Oh, I heard that. That's the first time Chuck laughed at a right because all the other rights were Chuck's. <laughs> right. I know, but I've been typing them into the Skype chat except for that one there. Yeah, Evan's being evil. <laughs> Evan's being evil. Well, the first two letters are the same. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly where to go with that. I'm not either, but <laughs> but it works. Let it die, so- let it die. So you, you get some characterization tests around things. You start cleaning it up. I like the idea of putting up uh, some kind of visual cue that things are going on. How far do you go with that that refactoring or testing? Do you just test the things that are related to what you're changing? Yes. Boy Scout, uh, the, the Boy Scout rule is basically what I go by. That mm-hmm. I, I have to work on the – I, I want to focus on parts of the project that will directly add value to the client. But my, my rule is when, when I touch it, I'm going to make it better. And I usually – if it's – depending on the decrepitude, and I've worked on a lot of decrepit projects, uh, I find myself working to make it quite a bit better because I need it to be maintainable, usually because it barely was when I got there. So yeah, a little bit kind of like, based on what needs to get done at the time. 
Yeah, and that's what I was saying, like how I kind of go maybe a layer above and below because, you know, you'll have that one section you're working on that's better and then that betterness leaks out a bit and over time the leaks will kind of cover each other and the overall quality goes up. And so, so that's, wait, I, oh, sorry, go ahead, Eric. I said I that's kind of how I approach it. I mean, there's also the business side of like, you know, if, if the project's going to be shelved in six months or it's going to be taken out of production all that, like that's going to affect your judgment too of how much better or you want to make things. But yeah, I mean, it's all Boy Scout rules. The, the thing I think about all the time when I'm doing this kind of stuff. So I've got another metaphor that, that would, I've got the number one metaphor to go with the number two metaphor we were using at the beginning. You guys ready for this one? So, um, what I was talking to a client about how we were trying to make – this is a lead software developer on a project I'm working with – and how we're trying to make the, the app better because the app has, has problems all over the place in terms of the code quality. And I said the problem that, that we're facing is that it's like pissing in a pond. That you can, t- you can turn the pond yellow – if you assume the goal is to turn the pond yellow, you can do that. It's just going to take a while. <laughs> yeah, and I think you have to have like – you know the rest of the team kind of on board with you because if you're if you're cleaning up messes all at the same time there's six other people making more messes the net is you're going to have a mess worse than you started and that's something to watch out for and I know there's you know you can try to mentor the team or what I do is I try to like you know the show don't tell like I'll show you how you do good stuff and I'll be kind of vocal about hey look at this good stuff and hope they'll get it but sometimes you kind of have to be more forceful and um, I've even heard of people even going above the team's head all the way up to like you know CTO CEO level and saying look your team's not doing their stuff you need to get on them yeah but that that's sort of at that point you're talking hardcore hardball politics yeah and you have to be very careful and you also have to have basically used every other option at that point because doing an end runaround the whole software development team that hypothetically you're trying to work with is a great way to lose credibility with almost all of those people Mm -hmm. but at the same time is it depends on how your circumstance i mean if the project is going under and it's like management's thinking this is going to get killed it's a waste of time that might be an option to save it but you know that's what you need hail mary's i agree yeah, I mean, you have to have a lot of political trust built up with you know whoever you're going to go to. You have to prove that you're right because they could always say, "Look, you're the consultant. You don't know our organization. You're wrong. You're fired." Mm-hmm. Right. So. A legitimate option too. <laughs> There's an approach that um, I, I've never used um, in its entirety, but Intridia came up with uh, I think on one of their projects, and they started doing it on a few others. This. Um, uh, I don't know what it's this agile approach called forge and what it what it is is it you give different members of the team tasks that take different amounts of time so if you have a sprint that's you know 2 weeks long or something you have one developer whose job it is to just churn on the small bits and and sort of do cleanup work um and then the other developers have you know longer tasks and as they come off of their like a short task they'll go and help another developer on a bigger one and um I've seen that you know be a very successful approach where you can ha- put put somebody just for this sprint you're you're going to go around you're going to do cleanup work and make sure everything's getting you know like any tiny little things that's falling through the cracks that aren't big enough for us to add story points to or whatever it is for our planning session then you you just take care of it so you basically have one person or whatever doing all the cleanup work and then as some people who are working on actual new features as they finish they come and do more cleanup work or help other people is that kind of i'm looking at a graphic of it 
Yeah, exactly. One thing that I'm wondering, and this is kind of related to both of what you guys have said, how do you go in and fix something and educate the person who made the mistake without it feeling like you're picking on them in some way? I mean, some some guys have ego. Some guys will just be like, oh, thanks for pointing it out. I feel good about it. You know, I won't make the same mistake again. And some folks are like, why are you on my case? Almost everyone has an ego. It's it, it, it's a matter of how personally they identify or how much they identify themselves with their work. Mm-hmm. Not me. I, so, I am the most humble person you will ever meet. <laughs> I bet you're proud of that. And, 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 if, you, and, and if you believe Very that, I, I've got, I know a few bridges in, in, in Manhattan I could sell you. But <laughs> I got some switches too. <laughs> but um, in any event, it, to me that seems to be the case. There are people who are completely detached, and I guess I've—I'm not sure how many clients I've worked with like that. I mean, I've degrees of detachment, no one is really completely. And so it's a matter of a little emotional intelligence, determining, realizing how attached they are, and that can—that's the kind of thing that can be trickier to do when you're freelance, when you're remote, when you're not on site. Because that's very nuanced. Uh, either unless you've had a lot of communication with a person, um, a little bit of in-person time makes it a lot clearer. Just body language, facial expressions, all the little things you don't get. Well, but even, uh, even you know, if you're if you're brought in on a project specifically to make changes and and you know turn the team around or something, that's, I think that's it's still de, that's still de facto versus de jure, you know, Latin legal terms that you're brought in de jure to fix things. But the truth of it is, this is what I, one thing I said earlier. You might be hired for one reason, but the people who have the people you're working with really might want you there for another one. And you well, yeah, think- but what what I was going to say was that even if you are hired to do that, it would be wise to not do that from the start. You, you know, if if you yes. need to change culture, you have to do it in very small steps, and and like at first, just learn how everybody works, and just don't do. A thing that's different from what they're what they're doing. Absolutely. Yeah, you got to slowly introduce ideas, and that's kind of what I was saying earlier about. I try to like lead by example, so it's like, you know, if say for instance they're not writing tests or the tests are bad, I'll try to write good tests, and I'll try to point out like in a comment like, okay, adding in a bunch of tests for this, and kind of show like this is how you know the development should be, and not really getting on their case or saying that you guys are doing it wrong, but saying like. You know, this is how it could be. And, you know, if there's some smart people that really care about the project, they might pick up on that and start trying to adapt their ideas. And that's kind of what Evan was saying. You know, have the emotional intelligence that, that to notice if they're kind of borrowing from you and slowly improving it in their own way now. You know, so, that, rem- that reminds me, um, just quick anecdote. I, when I was in college, I did a summer of, you know, painting. I was painting some home and I remember it being my first day and we were painting the outside of some customer's house and there was this, you know, expert painter next to me. He was doing the window trim because he was really good at it and he looked at me and he saw that I was not, you know, it was just this painting job, just slap some paint on it and he looked and he said, you know, no matter what you do, if you make it a craft, you can really enjoy it. And so even if you're working with terrible code, if you really turn it into a craft, you can walk away with enjoyment. This is why I, 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 I said to people I actually kind of enjoy being a code janitor. Cleaning up bad projects is kind of a craft for me. But what I was going to say, though, in terms of the political aspect, in terms of the determining how to teach people, 
um, to improve or to work with an existing team working on brownfield to improve. This is where I actually like to go out to a customer site as early as I can in the project. I like to go out for <laughs> I like to go out for maybe a week on site whenever possible with these clients at the very beginning and try to get a sense of the people and to try to get a sense of the culture because that's usually the environment I find myself having the most difficulty navigating. The code, messy or not, solutions present themselves, but the the people, it's easier to collect a lot more information on the ground and then figure out how best to help them. Yeah, and that I, doesn't I, necessarily mean interfere. It means help. No, I I agree. I mean, I'll try to do that too. Even if I'm um, if either I want to or I'm only brought on to do uh, some part time work or something where it's not you know a full week's uh, worth of forty hour billable time or whatever it may be. I always say at the beginning, I'd really like to have enough time where where I have a full schedule, but then back off because, you know, if you're just kind of coming and going at the beginning of the project, you can't really get a feel for the other developers or the code or how things are running. Right. So what um, what else uh, haven't we talked about? I mean, what experiences do you have in, you know, when maybe things have gone right or things have gone wrong where you attempt to make a change and it's either not accepted by the client or not accepted by the development team or you know what do you do when you get up against you know pushback try another angle or retire i mean i i've, I've <laughs> i guess i mean that well not not immediately but usually it's it's try a bunch of angles and then i i think i've i might have mentioned talked about this to some degree in other podcast but um Every individual has a limit to how much that they can learn, how much they can change, how much it, it, within a, a finite period of time. Uh, I've found that some of my clients, in, in working on improving them, they get to a point of change fatigue where we just want to, to to get stuff done and the heck with making improvements. Let's just go. And when they get to that point, I well, frankly, I get impatient, and that's usually when I'd say, well. I'm going to part ways with you now. Uh, and the explanation that I have for that, I forget which book provided this this good guideline suggestion, is that if you find yourself working with a team whose at least technical, if not business practices, don't stand up to don't live up to your standard, then your options are either to leave or to lower your standards. And if you lower, you find yourself working at lower standards for a long enough period of time, your actions become habit. You've now lost something valuable to yourself. So in that case, I find that it's dangerous for me to stay on projects like that because I get dumber. Yeah, I can see that. Where you, can you see basically me getting dumber? <laughs> no, no, no. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't want to say anything, but anyhow, I... I really like that explanation, to be honest, because when you start doing things in a way contrary to what you know is best, then, yeah, you are forming habits. If you're brought in to, you know, as a consultant to kind of give advice of how to improve, if they're not going to take your advice, I mean, it's almost like, why are you there type thing? And, yeah, you could do the day-to-day grind, but like you said, Evan, like, that grinds you up, too, and that's not fair to your other clients or your, whatever, career future, whatever you want to call that. As I said, it, it it hurts me. It's not it's not just that it's not fun. It's that the, I'm going to lower my the quality of my own work, which is going to impact my future as a business. Not only that, but it also impacts my enjoyment long term too, because I tend to follow a lot of the practices that I do because they make my job easier, and making my job easier tends to make it more fun by degrees. If it's if it was too easy, then this job would be pointless. 
right? Mm-hmm. Right? Right? <laughs> <laughs> My new goal is to make it so that when you try and make that joke, it won't apply anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, anyway, it's time to get to the picks, unless there's another aspect of this we want to tackle real fast. Nope. All right. Let's Nada. let's go ahead and do the picks then. Eric, what are your picks? Okay, so I got uh, two picks today. The first one's actually a Rails commit I saw come through. Um, I'll post it in here because I'm not going to be telling you what the commit hash is because that's just boring. <laughs> but basically, I think it's going to Rails 4, but they basically changed the test locations. So instead of being like test units, test functional, test... Well, yeah, I guess it kept test integration, but you know, test units, test functional. It's now going to be like test models, test helpers, test controllers, test mailers, that's and hard. it's re- yeah, it's really nice because like that's the only thing I actually like about RSpec is that RSpec kind of says all of this stuff is unit tests, and but it's unit tests for different parts of your application. Whereas kind of Rails for the longest time when it's using test unit, it kind of blurs the lines on things. So that commit came in. Um, like I said, I think it's going to go in Rails 4, but it's really, I, I really like it. It's going to be a good uh, good improvement. My second pick is by TechPub. Uh, it's a screencast called Practical Knockout JS. Um, it's a paid screencast, but it's basically about 90 minutes of getting into Knockout. And I liked it because I'm doing a project that uses a lot of Knockout, and I have a little bit of experience with it, but going through this, I got to see a bunch of stuff that I haven't played with, and the project actually doesn't use either. Pretty nice. It's you know it goes through basically adding Knockout, adding the whole you know improvement to a UI for something that you can do like um, on a Rails app for CRUD stuff. So it's pretty neat, and I think the best part about it was the last two parts of the series, they uh, kind of get into refactoring. And it's actually not very knockout specific, but it's actually JavaScript and how to refactor jQuery type stuff. So it's it's a pretty good thing. It's good to watch. Um, like I said, it's paid screencasts about uh, 88 minutes long. Cool. Evan, what are your picks? I have one pick because it's been a pretty crazy week. I'll leave it at that. Um, and this pick is a new podcast that I just started over the weekend. Uh, it is called The Delighted Developer. And it is about, in a nutshell, how we as developers engage with the um, emotional, uh, I guess I'd say the emotional, the human condition of being software developers. So not necessarily so much a technical focus, but more of a personal focus. And I'm going to be interviewing folks, maybe doing a panel every now and then, maybe monologuing a little bit, because, you know, I don't like to talk or anything. Um, And I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Right. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Well, I'll link it. You can start listening. All right. Jim, what are your picks? I only have one pick, uh, and it's uh, an application that's called Dead Man's Snitch. Oh, uh, yeah, by Randy. Yeah. Uh, a friend of ours who uh, I met at Ruby Camp uh, is building this uh, monitoring application that makes sure that you're notified when any of your periodic tasks don't happen. So, uh, you know, for example... Uh, Pingdom can make sure that your site is up and running, but I don't think it has any way to let you know if your you know uh, hourly or daily mail processing queue wasn't flushed or or whatever it is. So um, uh, take a look at that. That's my pick. All right. Well, then I'll jump in with my picks. My first pick came out today in the Mac App Store. It is called Tweetbot for Twitter. It's basically Tweetbot, except it runs on your Mac instead of your iPhone. 
And they've Wait, had, it's, it's out? It's out. Yes! It costs $20. Oh, my God. And I, I think that's to kind hey, of only get the hardcore folks that really want it because that I think really there's because they're limited on the user tokens for Tweetbot. What, why? Oh my God! When you hear twenty bucks, though. Well, the iOS version, which this seems, which I'm using the alpha. I've been using the alpha of Tweetbot for ages. The iOS version, both iPad and iPhone, are significantly cheaper. So that's my shock. Huh. And how much does your Mac cost again? <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand what the cost of the hardware has to do with the software, which is very similar across platforms. Yeah, I, I literally think it's an attrition play because they only have so many user tokens that they can acquire from Twitter without jumping through more hoops. Yeah, I remember reading something about that because, when they were in their app. Yeah, because Twitter had changed the rules on how they allocate those. So, Anyway, that that's just a theory. I really don't know why it costs so much, but... Um, I'm, I like their interface enough to where I just bought it. So. I love it. Yeah. My other pick is a talk on Confreaks. Um, we were talking about writing tests, refactoring code, making it better. And there's a terrific talk by Katrina Owen at C- Cascadia Ruby conference. She also spoke at Scotland on rail or S- Scotland Ruby or whatever they call that one in Scotland. Same talk, and so you can go watch the video there as well. Um, it's called Therapeutic Refactoring, and it is awesome. So definitely go check it out. I think it's also on YouTube, but uh, you, you kind of get the idea. It's 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 just an awesome talk. You just need to go see it. And uh, we actually had her on Ruby Rogues and talked a little bit more about it. So if you want extended conversation on that, you can go over there and find the episode that she was on. In fact, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And outside of that, do we have any announcements that we want to go over or anything else? Right. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, then we will call it a call it an episode. We'll catch you all next week. Right. See ya. See ya. <laughs> right. See ya. <laughs>